This is News to Go, your daily news podcast featuring news from various news outlets. Heard via our Anchor podcast app and playing on iRadio daily until mid-afternoon. Now the news. News Nation this hour, I'm James Sears. A Super Bowl celebration in Los Angeles is getting out of hand. Hundreds of Rams fans have taken over streets in the downtown area, even forcing some freeway off-ramps to shut down. Police have declared an unlawful assembly and are working to clear everyone out. Reporter Jennifer McGraw is there. Crowds erupting and chanting all across Los Angeles. Rams House! This is for all Los Angelites and Californians who have been waiting to get the throne! And the vibes taking over the streets outside of LA live with dancers and partiers, coupled with a side of illegal street takeovers and fireworks. LA, this is normal for us. We celebrate all the time. We celebrated when Kobe scored 60 points, and that's not even a championship. The Rams beat the Bengals 23-20 in their home stadium. Wide receiver Cooper Cup made the final touchdown and was named MVP. At the Olympics, Russian figure skater Camilla Valieva was cleared early this morning to continue competing after failing a drug test before the Games began. A court also ruled a 15-year-old can keep her gold medal in the team event. The U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee CEO Sarah Hirschland says it's disappointed by the message the ruling sends. She says athletes are being denied the right to know they're competing on a level playing field. She says it's part of a systemic and pervasive disregard for clean sport by Russia. Ukraine is calling for a meeting with Russia and other members of a key European security group within the next 48 hours to explain the buildup of troops on its border. Russia has denied any plans to invade. The White House has warned it could happen any moment. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is reportedly getting ready to pull all government personnel from the U.S. Embassy in Kiev within the next two days. President Biden says it's a tough call for states choosing to remove mask mandates. Speaking to NBC News, Biden says following science has been his top priority this pandemic. I committed that I would follow the science, the science as put forward by the CDC and the, and the, and the federal people. And uh, I think it's probably premature. Biden adds he's done his best to ensure the U.S. has all vaccines, boosters, masks, and other protections needed. And Americans will likely spend nearly $24 billion on Valentine's Day this year, marking the second highest year of Valentine's Day spending, just behind the $27.4 billion spent in 2020. It comes out to an average of just over $175 per person on gifts. Find News Nation on your cable or satellite provider and stay up to date around the clock at NewsNationNow.com and on the News Nation Now app. I'm James Sears detailed forecast for your Valentine's Day 2022. Today, a chance of flurries afternoon, mostly cloudy, with a high near 23. Southwest wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight, a chance of flurries before 1 a.m., partly cloudy, with a low around 14. Southwest wind around 5 miles per hour becoming calm. Tuesday, partly sunny, with a high near 36. Southeast wind 5 to 15 miles per hour with gusts as high as 20 miles per hour. Tuesday night, mostly cloudy, with a low around 30. Southeast wind 15 to 20 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 35 miles per hour. Wednesday, be aware of flooding that is possible with the winter storm entering the area. More details in tomorrow's forecast. A 50% chance of rain, mainly after 1 p.m., mostly cloudy, with a high near 49. South wind around 20 miles per hour with gusts as high as 35 miles per hour. Wednesday night, the uncertain tracked winter storm enters our area. Please monitor future forecasts for alerts on ice accumulation and snow. Rain, low around 32. Chance of precipitation is 100%. 
New precipitation amounts between 3 quarters and 1 inch possible. Thursday. Rain or freezing rain before 11 a.m., then freezing rain, possibly mixed with snow between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., then snow after 1 p.m., high near 35. Chance of precipitation is 80%. Thursday night. A 30% chance of snow before 1 a.m., mostly cloudy, with a low around 12. Friday. Mostly sunny, with a high near 26. Looking for just that neat item? Can't find it anywhere at the big stores? Well drop by B4 Retail Discount Store located at 23440 US 33 in Dunlap South of Elkhart. They have items at reduced prices. Hey, they're on Facebook too. Open Monday through Friday 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and weekends 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's B4 Retail Shop here in Dunlap. From the Black Information Network. This is the BIN Daily Update. I'm Vanessa Tyler. And I'm Mike Stevens on your home for 24-7 News, the Black Information Network. So now, I'm asking them, I'm imploring them, I'm begging them, I need to know what happened to my son. No answer for the mother of Jelani Day. Her son is the missing, later found dead grad student. But the circumstances around his death caused the creation of an Illinois bill that could become law. It states... If a body is left unidentified for 72 hours, the FBI must be contacted. In Jelani's case, the black Illinois State University student was first reported missing last August when his body was found in the Illinois River. It took nearly a month to identify him. The bill has passed committee and is on the Senate calendar. Meanwhile, Jelani's family is certain his missing turned to murder. The FBI is offering a $10,000 reward for any information. The black man accused of running over and killing six people during a Christmas parade in Wisconsin, pleaded not guilty. Daryl Brooks Jr. entered his plea to all 77 charges he's now facing in connection with that November attack in Waukesha. Included in the 77 charges are six for homicide. Brooks would spend the rest of his life in prison if convicted of one of those homicide charges. He'll be in court again next month. Also in court, the three ex-cops accused of standing by as George Floyd died. As the prosecution wraps up, the defense begins. Former cops Tutal, J. Alexander King, and Thomas Lane must explain to the jury why they didn't stop the senior officer, Derek Chauvin. As testimony pointed out, they were trained to do. Instead, Chauvin, who was convicted of murder, took Floyd's life by kneeling on his neck. Listen closely to what a white substitute teacher says to a black student at a high school in Michigan. What did you say? Get your cotton-picking hands off, referring to an object the student was touching. That upset kids so much at Farmington Hills High, they walked out. When she can say that type of thing and think that there's nothing wrong with it, because that like will affect me for the rest of my life, even if I'm not even thinking about it. It'll be in the back of my mind subconsciously. And finally, even his name sounds tough. Sergeant Henry Black Death Johnson. He is considered the first black American hero of World War One. During this Black History Month, the Military Times remembers his actions. It was in France in 1918. He was just one of two on guard duty when the Germans made a late night attack. Even injured, shot many times, he launched grenades. When he ran out of them, he picked up a rifle. When that jammed, he swung the weapon 
weapon at them, then finally used a knife. He saved lives with his bravery, which is how he got the name Sergeant Henry Black Death Johnson. For more on these stories and international, national, state, and local news affecting the black community, listen to the Black Information Network on the iHeartRadio app or log on to BINnews.com. I'm Vanessa Tyler with Mike Stevens on your home for 24-7 News, the Black Information Network. This episode is brought to you by Polestar, a car brand designing a future that's 100% electric. Polestar is saying no for all the right reasons. No empty promises because Polestar turns visions into reality. No greenwashing because their words are set in stone. No conquering Mars because Earth is their priority. No compromises because the planet deserves real action. Get the full story and explore the Polestar 2 at polestar.com. I'm Mike Stevens. And I'm Vanessa Tyler on your home for 24-7 News, the Black Information Network. We're not going anywhere until we get the justice that we need. That comment from a black resident in Darby Township, Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia, after firefighters were allegedly recorded on a radio call mocking the death of a little black girl from a police shooting. When I got this information, it bothered me because it makes you wonder how many calls that we made that they didn't come on time to save a life. The patience for people of color is over. There is no more, well, we'll fix it five minutes from now, 20 days from now, 20 years from now. All of us who say we want to remove systemic racism starts with places like that. The district attorney's office is investigating the allegations. A white Tennessee city lawmaker admits he called a black neighbor a racial slur. I said, I called him the N-word. I ain't gonna lie. Thomas Dillard, an alderman in Portland, Tennessee, is facing calls to resign after he admitted to police that he called the neighbor the N-word during an argument. The NAACP is now involved. Black Vice President Kamala Harris is applauding efforts to get rid of lead contamination in Newark, New Jersey, a city that is 50 percent black. She says it's extremely important to get rid of lead pipes and paint. Harris joined Governor Phil Murphy and other leaders in a roundtable discussion to applaud Newark's work. To highlight what you have accomplished here in Newark as an example and a role model of what cities around our country are capable of doing, I thank you for that. The governor noted Newark has now replaced every one of its 23,000 lead service lines. The city reached a crisis point in recent years when bottled water had to be distributed to residents because of dangerous lead contamination in the city water. It's hurting our babies. Over half of the children of our nation who are under the age of six are at risk on this issue. Several black communities nationwide are also dealing with similar water contamination, infrastructure, and public health issues. Figures show half the world is fully vaccinated. But what about the other half? Many of them live in places like Africa where it's been difficult to get vaccines. The United States was among the nations criticized for buying up most of the early global supply of coronaviruses. But the United States also then donated millions of doses to nations in Africa. But because many countries have limited storage capacity, some of the vaccines not used in time had to be thrown away. By the way, the term fully vaccinated could change in the future. More business deals have been made on golf courses than perhaps many boardrooms, which has caused some African-Americans to miss out. Not because we don't have the ability to play, but sometimes we don't have the finances to hit the links. This goes for college golf teams, too. 
Well, now United Airlines and the PGA Tour are working together to help HBCU golf programs with travel expenses. The $500,000 being shared by 51 black schools will allow 250 black student athletes to fly to tournaments they might have missed out on before. I'm Mike Stevens with Vanessa Tyler on your home for 24-7 News, the Black Information Network. This episode is brought to you by Found. Let's be real. Weight loss isn't just diet and exercise. It's also your biology, lifestyle, and environment. Found helps put all these factors into a weight care plan that centers your needs. Their doctors prescribe the right medication, and their coaches help you eat, move, sleep, de-stress, and work toward your weight loss goals. Start today by taking a simple quiz at joinfound.com Spotify and find your personalized weight care plan. Your money on the Black Information Network. Consumer sentiment is hitting its lowest level in a decade. The University of Michigan's early reading for this month fell more than 8% from January, largely due to inflation. Gas prices continue to squeeze American wallets at the pump. AAA's national average price for regular is up another penny to $3.48 a gallon. The numbers say blame it on the law of supply and demand. The Federal Energy Information Administration reported that total domestic gasoline stocks fell by 1.6 million barrels in recent days, while demand rose by almost a million barrels a day. Well, structural barriers in the U.S. have created profound racial inequalities made worse by the pandemic. With that, J.P. Morgan Chase says it's committed to helping close the racial wealth gap and driving economic inclusion by providing more opportunities for home ownership, access to affordable housing, entrepreneurship, and bolstering financial health. In a statement, the company says building on their existing investments, J.P. Morgan Chase is helping drive inclusive growth by committing $30 billion by the end of 2025 to advance economic growth and opportunity for Black, Hispanic, and Latino communities. Money News at 24 and 54 minutes past each hour. I'm Julius White on the Black Information Network. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Zoe Deschanel and I'm so excited to be joined by my friends and castmates, Hannah Simone and Lamorne Morris to recap our hit television series, New Girl. Join us every Monday on the Welcome to Our Show podcast where we'll share behind the scenes stories of your favorite New Girl episodes. Each week we answer all your burning questions like, is there really a bear in every episode of New Girl? Plus you'll hear hilarious stories like this. Fun that fact. was one of your things too. you brought back from Latvia. Yeah, I brought back because a Because all professional <laughs> basketball players. Yeah, it's like a little <laughs> seven foot hoop. Yeah. Listen to the Welcome to Our Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Download the BIN Daily Update every morning on the iHeartRadio app. Russia is expected to start war this week with Ukraine. This is a very serious global crisis. Stay tuned on this station and its Facebook group for the latest. Welcome to 2022 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. So far, we've only seen escalation from Moscow. This is a pivotal moment. We're prepared for whatever should happen. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Fiji over the weekend, but he described as troubling new Russian deployments near the border of Ukraine. President Joe Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke by phone for an hour Sunday. And Vice President Kamala Harris heads to Germany this week for a security conference. The Munich visit marks her fifth foreign trip as vice president. Before her trip, Harris stopped in New Jersey Friday. She spoke about Newark's efforts to replace its lead water pipe. It is a public health issue. It is an equity issue. It is an issue of education. It is an issue of whether we are willing to invest in our future in terms of investing in our communities. Some civil rights leaders are pushing for faster administration action to replace lead pipes that hurt Black and Latino communities. A Canadian judge has granted police more authority to remove vaccine mandate protesters blocking the Ambassador Bridge to Detroit. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the five-day blockade by truckers at the border. The blockades are hurting small businesses and neighborhoods. At the border, they're impacting trade, supply chains, and manufacturing. The people these blockades are hurting are everyday families. According to the New York Times, Rudy Giuliani is in active discussions with the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The former New York mayor and lawyer for former President Donald Trump is under subpoena to testify about how closely Trump coordinated with the mob that attempted to overturn the election. A jury of nine is expected to resume deliberations today in former Republican vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin's libel case against the Times. Palin sued the newspaper over an editorial linking her to a deadly 2011 shooting in Tucson that killed six and wounded then-member of Congress Gabby Giffords. Syracuse University law professor Roy Gutterman. And uh, and Governor Palin is arguing that uh, her reputation has been damaged by this false mistake that was published and corrected. The Times uh, went really quickly and within 14 hours published a correction uh, to set the record straight. James Bennett, then the editorial page editor at The Times, has denied the newspaper intentionally tried to defame Palin. The Times corrected the article and says the error didn't harm Palin's reputation. I'm Nadia Ramlagan for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This is President Biden. Please pray for Ukraine. I will be delivering this year's State of the Union address on March 1st. Come watch it. The Public News Service Doe Newscast, February the 14th, 2022. I'm Mike Clifford. Florida Republicans proposing yet another sweeping change to state election laws. We get the details now from our Tremel Gomes. The new bill would establish an Office of Election Crimes and Security, a slimmed-down version of Governor Ron DeSantis's elections police proposal. GOP Senator Travis Hudson of Palm Coast says it's meant to safeguard elections. But Mark Early, the supervisor of elections for Leon County, says it also adds further restrictions to voting by mail that could cause more confusion and problems. We're very concerned as supervisors of elections that the requirement for these identification numbers on the vote-by-mail certificates is going to disenfranchise voters, complicate the process, and make it much more difficult for us to get our vote-by-mail ballots tabulated 
by election night. The bill also would require voters to write identification numbers on mail-in ballots and create a new envelope, which Democrats say raises new barriers. Election supervisors say they were not consulted on the proposed changes, but Early says they're now vigorously trying to provide input. I'm Tremel Gomes. Groups including the League of Women Voters are already waiting on a federal judge to determine whether the last election overhaul discriminates against minorities, older voters, and people with disabilities. Now from Reuters, North America's trade link reopened for traffic Sunday, ending a six-day blockade, a top U.S. official said. Canadian police made several arrests Sunday and cleared protesters and vehicles that occupied the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, Ontario, following a court order that came in on Friday. Reuters reports the blockade choked the supply chain for Detroit's carmakers, forcing both Ford and Toyota to cut production. Meantime, as the nation shifts towards ending the pandemic phase of COVID-19, another health crisis appears to be worsening. A new bipartisan congressional report says drug overdose deaths surpassed 100,000 nationally in one year. And most involve synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Here in Ohio, fentanyl killed nearly 19,000 people between 2016 and 2021, highest number among states. Linda Sider runs Caracol, a Hamilton County organization that provides what are known as harm reduction supplies to drug users. She says fentanyl can be found in almost every illicit drug now. Not just heroin, even meth and crack, and oftentimes people are unprepared for the fentanyl that whatever they're smoking may be placed with. They are at risk for an overdose. Unlike most other areas, Hamilton County has seen a 34% decrease in opioid-related deaths in the last several months. Mary Sherman reporting. This is PNS. A guaranteed income pilot project called In Her Hands aims to reduce poverty among low-income black women in Atlanta. Lily Bulky reports for Soundbite Source that black women in Georgia are more active in the workforce than white women, but are twice as likely to live in poverty. Hope Wolensack is co-director of the Guaranteed Income Initiative and leads the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund. She says participants receive $850 a month for 24 months, and there are no conditions for how the money can be used. Wolensack thinks it's important that people in the program are trusted to make the best choices for themselves and their families. If $850 a month is compelling enough against labor market wages that people no longer incentivize to work, I think that's more an indictment on the current wages to the cost of living than it is about our program. Studies have shown cash aid to low-income mothers improves the cognitive functioning of their newborn babies and helps families afford basic necessities. And while opponents say guaranteed income discourages people from working, research has shown that isn't the case. And a campaign to pressure political candidates to forego contributions from fossil fuel interests is gaining steam in the Lone Star State. Environmental advocates want anyone seeking public office to sign the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge. It means they'd refuse to accept contributions over $200 from fossil fuel companies. Corey Trajani with the Texas Campaign for the Environment says after last February's winter storm caused the Texas power grid to fail, voters deserve transparency from candidates. They did not work to fix our grid in any meaningful way. And what we found is that a lot of those lawmakers have interests the fossil fuel industry. The grid collapse due to winter storm Uri knocked out power to millions of homes and businesses for days and contributed to the deaths of more than 200 Texans. I'm Roz Brown. 
Finally, Eric Tadoff tells us to mark the losses of the past two years from the pandemic. People are posting Valentine's Day cards in Portland. A wall in the city has been dedicated to Valentine's to loved ones people have lost, and thanks to folks on the front lines, such as first responders and teachers. Betsy Zucker is a retired nurse practitioner and chair of the healthcare committee for Portland Jobs with Justice. She says, in order to act on the pandemic, we have to recognize how much it has affected our lives. This action around Valentine's Day, when we think tenderly about people we love and things that we love to do together, is just. A time to bring that forward and let people resonate with it. In Oregon, there have been more than 6,300 deaths from COVID-19 and 672,000 cases. The action is part of a larger movement called "End the Pandemic Now," which is urging the U.S. government to do more to increase access to the vaccines globally. This is Mike Clifford, and thank you for starting your week with public news service member and listener supported, heard on interesting radio stations. And find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. At the outset of war in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, programming will be modified to bring you the latest on the war. Pray for Ukraine, Russia, and all NATO troops and countries, and the world in general. We now return to programming. Some critics are raising concerns about a growing number of articles in such publications as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today that suggest pedophilia is something a person is quote born with and that stigmatizing pedophiles may prevent them from seeking psychological help. Last year, a professor at Old Dominion University published a book expressing these ideas, and this month, a State University of New York professor said that pedophilia is not wrong. Michael Harrington, SRN News. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Ollie Barrett. Downing Street says the crisis on Ukraine's border has reached a critical juncture, and Russia could invade at any moment but officials say they think there is a window of opportunity for de-escalation. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's due to hold fresh talks with world leaders before a trip to Europe this week, and The Guardian's defence editor Dan Sabag says German Chancellor Olaf Scholz will travel to Moscow on Tuesday. He's supposed to go and meet Vladimir Putin, and it feels like at the moment, you know, with the situation as as tense as as it is on the borders of Ukraine, this feels like a sort of critical moment. And I think perhaps one last chance for sort of a diplomatic effort just to calm things down and persuade President Putin not to invade. Figure skater Kamila Valieva can compete at the Winter Olympics after a ruling at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. CAS says no provisional suspension should be imposed on the 15-year-old after a failed drugs test. A bridge linking the US and Canada has reopened after police cleared a blockade. Protesters demanding an end to COVID-19 vaccine mandates have shut down the border crossing for several days. William Denslow reports from Ottawa. On Sunday morning, Windsor Police announced there'd be zero tolerance for illegal activity and arrests followed throughout the day. Demonstrators have now been cleared from the bridge and Windsor's Mayor Drew Dilkins has announced that the economic crisis at the Ambassador Bridge has come to an end. This border crossing accounts for around $300 million worth of trade between the US and Canada each day and is especially crucial for automakers. Protesters in the nation's capital show no signs of ending their blockade of downtown Ottawa, outside of Parliament. William Denslow, Ottawa. Three states in India are holding elections in what's being called a referendum on Prime Minister Narendra Modi's popularity. The BJP party is in power in all three states, but regional players are putting up a fight to unseat incumbents, as Ishan Gurg reports from New Delhi. 
Analysts say the second phase of the election is crucial for regional parties who are hoping to secure the votes of minorities and lower income groups. Two smaller states, the coastal state of Goa and the Himalayan state of Uttarakhand, will also vote today. If BJP loses the three states, analysts say it could make it difficult for Prime Minister Narendra Modi to secure a third term in 2024. While economic issues such as jobs and inflation top the agenda for many voters, polarization along religious lines is also expected to play a large role. Ruling BJP's ethno-nationalistic agenda appeals to many, but rival parties hope to win by promising social security. The UK's tax body, HMRCs, seized three non-fungible tokens as part of an investigation into suspected fraud involving dozens of claimed fake companies. HMRC says three people have been arrested on suspicion of attempting to defraud the organisation. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. This is News Source 1 Michiana, Elkhart South Bend. In the preface to his famous book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer suggests there are two ways of knowing. And he illustrates this with two ways of knowing a road. The first is to build your house near the road and to sit in your balcony to be an onlooker. The balconier looks down on the road and discusses whether it leads anywhere how it's used by the travelers, and may even carry on discussions with the travelers walking down the road. And from this high place, one can actually know quite a bit about the road. The other way to know the road is to become the traveler, to actually experience the road, to not simply study the road from an outside vantage point, but to accept that that road will lead you somewhere good, and to put on your walking shoes. Hi, I'm Pastor Dole of Heart City Church, and I hope that your listening to this devotion reveals your interest in knowing God. I also hope that you desire to truly know God, not to simply know about God, because God will lead you to a higher place, as we discover in Psalm 61, which begins, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Here is the first step on the road. It begins with prayer. The psalmist calls out and he feels like he is a million miles from God, the ends of the earth. And he's real about how that distance makes him feel. He tells God, my heart grows faint. And then you hear this amazing faith request. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Instead of taking the balconier's high ground, he says, lead me to the true high ground. This psalmist believes that there is safety that is higher than any place on this earth that he could find. The picture is of high ground, like a rock formation that would be safe, a safe place in a flood. This is conviction of things not seen. A recognition that this world is a sinking ship. But there is a place that God can lead him to if he is simply willing to walk that road by faith. This means that he, can tr he trusts God can get him there. But he's not just going to sit in his easy chair. Being led means he is going to have to start walking and experiencing God's leading, God's road. Verse 3, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. And this traveler has learned that God is a safe place from past history. God has been, in fact, a strong tower in the past, 
a place where he could go during the storms of life. Verse 4, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. His past experience leads to longings for that permanent future fellowship with God in his tent. And he has that image, that picture. This It's really intimate, like a chick hiding under the strong wings of the mother bird. It says, I'm willing to be that vulnerable with you, God, warmly nestling myself under your soft feathers. Verse 5, For you, God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. When you come to know God, you begin to make promises on your journey to show him your loyalty. And you also come to enjoy the heritage God provides you now, the church community, the means of grace, that group of pilgrim people who are traveling together down the road. And this psalm ends then with some prayers for the king. It's kind of strange how this ends. The, the psalmist says, Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in the God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfill my vows day after day. Now, if David is the writer of this psalm, he is asking that God will endorse and prosper him. But this psalm would not be much use to us in our travels if we're praying for David, who is dead and no longer king in Israel. But our Lord Jesus, David's greater son, told us that this psalm is all about him, Luke 24. And we can pray for our Lord Jesus to be enthroned forever and know that God has and will answer that. Because our Lord Jesus, well, he left heaven to come to the ends of the earth so that he could make a road for us, a way, he is the way, and we can follow him all the way to glory. And in fact, as the resurrected Lord, he is that rock who is higher than us. He is our rock of ages. And we can trust that by following his leading, we will soon arrive at the gates of the celestial city. And we will be able to say that our life, our journey, was one where we truly came to know God. A journey that ends with us praising God for all eternity in the glory of the highest heavens. One commentator calls Psalm 61 one of the simplest and easiest prayers of the entire Psalter. It is surely that, but I hope you see that it is one for us to put in our traveler's log to reference regularly. If we want to know God, here we find a prayer packed with four useful helps for our journey. Here they are. It is a prayer for patient perseverance. It provides pictures of protection. It reminds us of promises for pilgrim people. And it ends with the prospect of perpetual praise. May you and I press on to that higher rock, my friend. Remember who you are and who you belong to. I think I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you again, I don't like change in my life. The older I get, the less I like it. I'd rather stay on the same routine, and if I can do that, I'll be as happy as a lark. I get up about the same time every day, and we eat all three meals about the same time every day. And we go to bed about the same time every day if we don't fall asleep before we go to bed.
And if I vary from that, and you see, I kind of feel out of sorts, both mentally and physically, throughout the day or, or whatever. And I have the same routine on, on Sunday mornings here as well, because our order of worship is always the same, except on Communion Sundays. And then I have to change my routine because it's different. I have to remember that we pray the Apostles' Creed instead of the Lord's Prayer after my pastoral prayer. And then there's the prayer of confession that we have to pray on Communion Sunday and, and the Communion Liturgy, and, and then we say the Lord's Prayer. But it's not just me, you see, because most of you have come here long enough, I think, that that you too have a routine on Sunday mornings. In fact, most of you have been here long enough for you to know the order of worship as a routine. And for some reason, if we didn't have a bulletin on some Sunday or another, I don't believe it would affect our worship service because we've got it down pretty pat in our in our minds. Except for Communion Sunday, of course, and that messes us all up once again. But it's easy to fall into a routine, and if we fall into a routine here at church, I sometimes wonder if maybe we don't get as much out of worship as we should. I wonder sometimes if we fall into this routine, if we just don't go through the motions of worship, that we, that we say the words, kind of like we, we, the words come out, but we don't really pay attention to what we're saying. Or maybe we don't even pay attention to what the words mean when they come out of our mouths on Sunday morning. On a normal Sunday morning, like this morning, we prayed the Lord's Prayer after my pastoral prayer. And it's the way we've always done it. It's a routine. And then again, I sometimes wonder if maybe we're not just saying the words to say them. Or do we really listen when we say it? Do we say them with meaning when we say them? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray collectively, meaning all of us together, with our Father. But in all reality, you see, we're actually talking to God one on one. When we call Him Father, we're, we're, we're saying that we personally have committed our lives to Him. And as individuals, we're giving him authority to, to rule over us and to lead us and guide us throughout our entire lifetimes. And we're willing to do what he wants us to do, and we're willing to go where he wants us to go. That in itself, you see, is a commitment that we shouldn't be taking lightly. It's something we just shouldn't say as matter-of-factly, as a routine every week. We call him God and we call him Lord, but I think God really likes it when we call him Father. I mean, the first time Jesus called God Father, well, the first time Jesus ever spoke in the Bible was back in, in the second chapter of Luke when his family was on the way home from Passover and they discovered that Jesus was missing. And, and after three days they found him in the temple and his, and his mom 
scolded him, I guess, for a better word. And the first words we ever hear Jesus say, didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house? And then just a few years later, the, the very last words we hear from Jesus come as, he, as, he's, as he's hanging on the cross and he's ready to take his last breath and he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. An interesting point in all this that I found is that, that scholars have looked and looked and, and nowhere in history, in the history of Judaism, has, has anyone ever called God Father except Jesus. But what also was interesting in his book, The Prayers of Jesus, Joaquin Jeremiah writes that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Father after him, which gives each of them, the, the, the disciples, a share of Jesus' sonship. So you see, when we make this, this decision to turn our lives over to God and, and make a commitment to him, we are immediately adopt, adopted into his family. And because we're immediately adopted into his, his family, we become his own son and or daughter, which automatically gives us the right or gives us the authority to call him Father, just like Jesus. I think people that have, have adopted children may understand better than anyone how God feels when we call him Father. For a lot of people, having a child is, a, is, is no big deal. You decide you have, want to have one, and nine months later, there's one waiting for you, you know. But there are also people in this world who, for some reason or another, can't have children, no matter how hard they try. And these are the people that know exactly what it's like to feel this, this, this void or an empty space in their hearts and in their lives. People who are willing to adopt a child know, know what it means to, to set out on a mission to fill that empty void in their lives. People who are willing to adopt are people who are willing to do whatever it takes to have a child call them mother or father. WNDU, which is Channel 16 over in South Bend on Wednesday, has a short segment on just before 6 o'clock, I think, called Wednesday's Child. And it's children in foster care system here in in South Bend area and in lower parts of Michigan that want to be adopted into a family. And if you ever looked into adoption laws in the state of Indiana, that the laws in the process can take up to over a year to complete. Among the many rules I found that are required for adoption is a, is a home study done by a licensed child placing agency or a the Office of Family and Children from the state that reports on your family background, your employment, your, your home life, and your, your health. These home studies, I found, include information in the home in which you live. It requires a, a criminal history background check, including FBI fingerprints. 
child abuse and neglect charge checks, local police checks, sex offender checks for anyone within your family. You have to have references from friends stating why they think you'd be a good parent and also what your weaknesses are in becoming a parent. And then all this is followed by an adoption training and counseling sessions and a, and a whole lot of other stuff that we don't have time to talk about this morning. But there was a story in the South Bend Tribune a number of years ago about a, a couple from Milford, Indiana, Kevin and Wendy Height. And they had trouble having children. And they had an empty space in their heart because of this, and so they decided to adopt. And in doing so, they went through what seemed to be miles and miles and, and days and days and weeks and weeks of, of paperwork to get this child that they wanted, a child that ended up living in Ukraine, which is in the news today, of course. Kevin and Wendy Hyde ended up spending five weeks in Ukraine during a time of, of political unrest, unfortunately, and, and during this time they spent over $24,000 before they could bring home their newly adopted daughter, Aliza. But while they were in Ukraine getting Aliza, they found out that she also had a 13-year-old sister named Olga. Olga was deaf, and she was in an orphanage about three, three and a half miles from where Aliza was. And they found out that since Olga was the oldest of the children, she had to sign paperwork to release her sister to be taken back to the United States by this, by this new family. And so they said that Olga had to sign off on Elisa's adoption since it would be separating them as siblings. And as she signed the papers, Wendy Height said this. She said that you could see the tears as they fell from Olga's eyes when she was signing the papers. And she said, at that point, I looked at Kevin, and Kevin looked at me, and we both knew that we couldn't leave her there by herself as we took her sister back to the United States. And so right there, they both made the commitment to adopt Olga as well. And it said because it was an orphanage for the deaf and hearing impaired, no adoptions had ever taken place out of that orphanage because when the girls in the orphanage turn about 16, they're put out on the streets, and most of them turn to prostitution to support themselves. And the article said that it was going to end up, of course, to cost them another $24,000 to bring sister number two back home. But that was okay with the heights, you see. They, they refinanced their home, and they put their living room furniture up for sale, and they even put a for sale sign up on their favorite boat. So it makes you wonder, why would two people go all that, to all that trouble to adopt not one child but two, and the second child is, is handicapped? I mean, they had a, a good marriage, they had good jobs, they had, were financially well set. And all that. Kevin Height summed it up like this. He said, it was for nothing but pure love. Two people who were willing to give up just about everything they had to put their house and their future on the line and on hold. They had no idea about the past of these two 
girls. They had no idea about the genetic makeup of the two girls, what, what the future held for them emotionally or, or physically, either one. But they put everything on the line to fill the, this, this void or this emptiness. They put everything on the line to be called mother and father. They put it all on the line simply because of love. Which kind of makes you wonder, I guess, how much God must really love us. I mean, why would God want to adopt me into his family? Don't laugh. Why would God want to adopt any of you into his family? He knows what we're like. He he knows what we've done. In fact, we're all liabilities to God, if you stop and think about it. We don't do what he wants us to do. We don't live our lives the way he wants us to live them. We don't devote ourselves to him the way he wants us to. He goes this way and we go that way. When it comes right down to it, we are nothing but trouble for God. Why would he even want to get involved with us? Well, he wants to be involved with us for the same reason that Kevin and Wendy Height wanted to get involved with these two little girls from Ukraine. Pure and simple love. Long ago, even before he made the world, Paul writes in Ephesians, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this, Paul writes, gave him great pleasure. Did you get that? God brings us to himself through Jesus Christ. It's, it's always about Jesus, isn't it? Everything we do is about Jesus. You can't get from here to, to there or there or there without him. I mean, before we decided to give our lives to him, we, we were in control of our own lives, including our own sinful nature. But God, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, brings us directly into his family, and he adopts us. And because of his unconditional grace, you see, we become a part of his family with no questions asked. No background checks, no medical checkups, no interviews, no, no waiting period between now and then. It all happens immediately. He accepts us as we are. And we immediately get to begin this, this new life because we're no longer who we used to be. Our old life has no control over us anymore. We've been adopted into his family and we become heirs to all of God's spiritual blessings, both today and in the future. Now that's not to say that everything's going to be perfect for us. We know better than that. We're going to have difficult times in our lives because Jesus had difficult times in his lives. He suffered and, and so will we, but we know that when we do, we have the love and the compassion of God 
whom we can call our Father with us throughout anything that we go through. William Barclay sums it up like this. When people become Christians, they enter into the very family of God. They did nothing to deserve it. God the Father, in his amazing love and mercy, has taken lost, helpless, poverty-stricken, debt-laden sinners and adopted them into his own family so that the debts are canceled and glory is inherited. So here's another thought this morning. Since, since we're all part of, of God's family, did you ever wonder what God's house looked like? Would God's house be messy like ours? Or would it be neat and tidy? Does he have cats and dogs? Would he have a cleaning lady come in every week and clean for him? Or do you think he does it himself? Would he keep the heat at 68 degrees in the wintertime? Or would he jack it up to 74 because he gets a little chilly? What would his living room look like? Do you think he has furniture, hardwood floors, or carpeting, lamps, pictures? Here's what I think. I think that that if God had a living room, he would have a huge picture hanging on the wall so that when you walked in the door, that picture would be the first thing that you saw. And in this picture would be a huge house sitting way up on a hill and there would be a road leading from here all the way up to that house. And if you look on that road about halfway up, you'll see two people standing there. One of the people is the guy that came down from the house. And it's hard to make it out, but it, it looks to me like he's, he's crying and he's laughing at the same time, like, like maybe he's crying tears of joy. But we can also see that the, that the man that's there has his arms wrapped around someone. And it appears to be a, a younger man or, or maybe a woman. But we can't tell for sure because that person has their face buried in the man's chest. But if we look down on the ground, we'll see some bags or some suitcases sitting there. You see, this painting in God's living room is a a huge painting of the prodigal son who's finally come home. He, like you and I, is a part of God's family, this prodigal son that's come home. But at one time, he decided he wanted to do things his way. And he found out that things didn't work out as well as he thought they would. And you have to wonder, why can't you see the face of the guy that's being hugged? Well, you can't see it because it changes every day. It changes every minute, every hour. It's never the same face. It's always someone new, time and time again, that's come back home. To give our lives to Jesus is all well and good, but 
In doing so, we've been adopted into God's family and we become heirs and we stand the right to inherit all and, and reap all the spiritual benefits and blessings that he has to offer to us. But this isn't God's first day on the job either, you see. God knows that we get sidetracked sometimes. He knew that when he adopted us, of course, because he knows all about us all the time. He knows that we get cocky and we get arrogant. We think we can do just as well sometimes without him and and maybe even better without him. And so when we come to a fork in the road, we let Jesus go this way and we let God go this way and we go that way time and time again. But the neat thing is, you see, that you are a part of God's family. And because you're a part of his family and because he loves you, he's always willing to take you back. The door to his house is always open and the light is always on. And here's something else I think that would be, and you look at that picture at the bottom of it in in big gold letters, it says this. It says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We belong to God's family, a family that's built on love, on grace, and on forgiveness. And if you get sidetracked or if you get lost, and you will get sidetracked and you will get lost, I don't care how old you grow, you can always come back. You can always come back home. Because you've been adopted, you see. You belong to God. You're part of God's family, and because you are your Father, my Father, our Father, will always love us. And because of His unconditional grace, you see, He'll always be there, no matter how far away we go. He'll always be there waiting for us with open arms. Amen.